BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. Welcome to Healing with Dr. George, The Power of Chicano Latinx Art. This is a podcast that explores the themes of self and community healing, whether as an artist, curator, collector, or admirer. I am your host, Dr. George Jesus Mesa, a Chicano clinical psychologist with a passion for promoting and preserving Chicano Latinx art. I'm working in conjunction with our partners at www.latinoarte.com an online marketplace that showcases and promotes the work of Chicano Latinx artists throughout the United States. Our guests for the podcast will include celebrated artists, collectors, curators, and influencers who will share their experiences and perspectives on Chicano Latinx art as we explore the themes of self and community healing through Chicano Latinx art. Our guest for today is a celebrated Chicano artist, Judith Hernandez. Judith first won acclaim as a member of the Chicano Artist Collective Los Four. The collective would become a major force in the Chicano art movement and the first Chicano artist to break through the mainstream museum barrier. After graduating from Modus Art Institute in 1974, her inclusion in museum and gallery exhibitions in California began immediately. Judith and Carlos Sarmaras earned recognition as muralists during the renowned Los Angeles mural renaissance of the 1970s. Together, they painted murals for labor rights leader Cesar Chavez and the United Farm Workers Union, as well as community murals throughout Los Angeles. Over her 52-year career, Judith has established a significant record of exhibition and acquisition of her work by major public institutions and private collections. Well, welcome, Judith. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, why don't we start talking a little bit about your early history, like where you were born, family, things like that? Oh, I'm I'm, a, I'm local. I'm I'm a native of Los Angeles. Um, actually, started out life on the um, in, in South LA. Uh, my parents moved here after World War II, and we lived at uh, 46th and um, Figueroa. And we moved when I was just before my brother started kindergarten to uh, Lincoln Heights, and then forever after we were here. And you know the 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 kind the farthest end of the of the barrio, right? You know the northeast you know corner of East LA. So I've always lived. I still live in in Highland Park. Lived in various places, you know, within this area, but always here. Um, how did you how did you start um, developing your artistic skills? 
You know, uh, I guess I'm either blessed or I'm one of those people who's blessed or cursed. Um, from the time I was the smallest child, I mean, like, you know, my mother had drawings that I actually did when I was about 18 months old that weren't too bad for a kid, for a tiny kid. Um, there was nothing else I wanted to do or could do. Every every piece of paper that's put in front of me, rather than write on it, I would draw on it. Uh, she had to put a paper in, in the bedroom that I shared with my brother uh, because I was beginning to draw on the walls. So, it, you know, it, 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 I guess it's been a lucky thing, you know, that I didn't have a choice. So, so many people are talented, you know, they're intelligent, they have skills, and they're sort of, you know, once they get to college or, you know, when they're in high school, they're trying to figure out what they're going to do with the rest of their life. I never had to think about it. I always just wanted to be an artist. Uh, during the time you were in high school as well, you were taking art classes and things like that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I was blessed to have some really amazing teachers. You know, for the time, this is the 1950s. And, um, you know, all of the teachers here, the vast majority, when I was going through school, uh, were white. And But they were... I don't know. They were surprisingly progressive people for their time. They were very um, supportive, you know, of other, I mean, they're almost 100% Mexican students, except for a smattering of Chinese, you know, kids from Chinatown. Um, that, you know, that if you had talent, if you were intelligent, you know, they, they helped those kids. They supported them, you know, tried to get them opportunities. And I was very lucky to have... Uh, Early on, have some art teachers who recognized my, I guess, recognized ability beyond somebody who would be a hobbyist and tried to, you know, put me in places where I, I could have more uh, sophisticated experiences, even when I was in grammar school. And by the time I was in high school, um, I, I was, you know, prepped by my wonderful art teacher, Mrs. Downey, to, to win that, that first big scholarship they gave away, uh, the, uh, what do they call it? The Future Masters, ha, <laughs> Future Masters, um, scholarship. And it, it was presented at LACMA. This is 1965. And it was like a thousand dollars. My parents were like, Oh my God, she may make a career out of this. So it was, you know, it, I was just so lucky all the way along. I mean, you know, no matter what people say, you, you never do it by yourself. You have to have help and you have to have luck. So what happened after high school? Well, high school, obviously, you know, on to, you know, a, a, an art experience that would, you know, finish the job that, that had been begun in high school. And my, that art teacher, my Mrs. Downey, was well acquainted with uh, a professor at Otis. They were old friends. Uh, he's, it was actually, you know, I know most people don't know his name anymore, but he was quite an important artist in his time. Um, uh, Joe Muyaini. He was, the uh, exclusive illustrator of the Ray Bradbury novels. And he also um, illustrated an Academy Award-winning um, animated film called Icarus Montgolfier Wright, which was about you know, flight and the development of flight. Um, he was very, he was, he was an Italian-American. He was born here probably around the turn of the 20th century. His parents had immigrated from Italy. Um, like actually all of my professors at Otis, they were European trained males, of course. There was like maybe one woman on the faculty uh, who was, uh, you know, from who was American. 
but all of these men were were so well trained, and um, that's the kind of training that I got from. Uh, I, I went to East to Elac for two years because Otis uh, had you come in at the junior level, and then spent you know two years as an undergrad, did my BFA, and then stayed for the MFA, and. Um, Although they, they had been trained in this classically Renaissance way and had passed those skills on to us, um, they were also incredibly open-minded. Uh, my, my graduate thesis committee was composed of, of, of two, of, well, of, two names you, you might know, and now you know Joseph Moyaini, but Charles White, who was a giant of American art of the 20th century, who had never until after his death has received, you know, the acclaim and the, and the, um, the, uh, you know, respect that he did not get during his lifetime. And he was very instrumental uh, in my, you know, I don't know, f the, the, the formation of my, of, of my, what would be my path? It would be very much like his. We were both minorities. Um, he was very fond of Mexico. He had lived there with his first wife, Elizabeth Catlett. And uh, we used to have conversations. I mean, he knew all these people. You know, he met the, you know, the Riveras and uh, the Bravos and the Siqueiroses and he had parties and stuff. And, um, and he was also very well treated there, which I was very w glad to hear. I remember one day he told me, I was sitting in the drawing room and he said to me, you know, I, I really, really love the Mexican people. Wasn't quite sure where he was going with that. And I said, gee, that's really nice. To hear, and he said, "You know, I I spent time there, you know, with my first wife, and I have to tell you, that was the first time in my adult life. He was, you know, by the time he was, he had, it was in Mexico. He was in his thirties. He had been raised in Chicago on the South Side, of course. And um, he said to me, that was the first time in my adult life that people who weren't black ever treated me with respect." And I thought, oh, my God, I nearly cried. I said, oh, my, you know, I thought, oh, God, I'm so happy. We're so nice to him. But, you know, that's Mexicans, right? We don't care. You know, this man was an artist, and that's all that people cared about. He was an amazing artist. And on that basis alone, he could have been green. You know, they didn't care. He was just this, you know, charming, intelligent guy who was an amazing artist. And they, they you know, they called him maestro. I used to call him that. I used to make him laugh. Um, he was a delightful guy. He was a, a wonderful mentor to me. And uh, he's, he's still, you know, I think of him often. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm blessed to know his son. He has a, a son who lives here in, in, in Altadena, who's also an artist. He teaches out at one of the colleges in the, you know, east of here, like in, you know, towards Pomona. Very nice guy. And he manages, uh, you know, Charlie's uh, archive and, and, and collection. And, uh, we're both kind of active at Otis. I, I, he asked me to be on on on, um, on the board for the uh, a, a Charles White Scholarship, which was which was just endowed by someone here in Los Angeles who's very wealthy because they endowed it into perpetuity, and it would be a full scholarship for students uh, of color. And I thought, how nice is that? And and it's an, it was and it's been established in the name of Charles White. So, um. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, 
and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. So what was the question? <laughs> well, the question was, yeah, after high school, but I'm wondering, what was uh, it like being a Chicana in an art school at that time? It was tough. Yeah, I mean, there were five Chicanos in the whole school. It was, in, in those days, it was in that, that building, which is now Charles White Elementary School, at the corner of Wilshire and, uh, and, and Carondelet. You remember where the, the Mexican restaurant is there? Oh, God, what was the name of that? La Fonda? Right next to the theater? Okay, well, the building in front of it, right on the corner, across from the park, that was originally Otis Art Institute. And then after they left to go to uh, to Westchester, uh, they eventually made that that building, those that, that small complex, into the Charles White Elementary School, which I thought was really nice. Um, and tell me again, what did you want? <laughs> so, so the issue about uh, being a Chicana and what, what year? Oh, what, yeah. what uh, these were? What what year? What year range are we talking about? I went to. I started Otis in 1969. Wow. And finished my BFA and MFA, I finished my MFA in 1974. I was actually, I will tell you this, and I don't tell many people this because I used to be embarrassed, but now it's kind of funny. I was very, you know, involved in, 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 in the movimiento when it started. Okay, it's 1969 and I'm a college student. And um, I was working with the, uh, with the group at UCLA, the, the, the Mecha Chicano Studies Department group with, you know, the, the great uh, um, is there, P- Professor Gomez-Quinones, who founded the, the Chicano uh, uh, Studies Center there. And um, so I was involved doing all kinds of things for them. I illustrated, you know, their, the Aslan Journal, and I was doing posters, and it was right out in UCLA, and I was dating a law student there. And... Um, I wasn't paying that much attention to classes I didn't like at Otis, so they kicked me out for a year. <laughs> my parents were furious. Oh, my God. You know, they gave you the scholarship, and now they're kicking you out. I said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I know. I know. But, you know, my parents were cool. You know, my mother even even packed us up on the day of the of the march for the moratorium. Yes. She she had she had all my the friends who that, that were coming with me you know gathered at the house she fed us breakfast and then she said enjoy the parade <laughs> she was so cute and innocent I said thanks mom I, you know, I was my fingers crossed I hope it's a parade I hope they don't start bombing us so um, yeah so the, getting back to the experience um, five Chicano students out of a, a a whole, there were only four, four years that were there at any one time, uh, juniors and seniors, undergrad, and then the, the graduate students. 
And uh, it was like 400 students tops at any one time because that facility was small. Five of, five of the, the, the people that I'm aware of, one of which was Carlos Almaraz, um, were not politically active. I mean, he and I and maybe one other person, the other two guys were totally acculturated and not interested in being part of the movement. So it was pretty lonely for us as a group. Uh, and then I was the only woman. I was consistently, you know, one of very few women that, you know, who would be, you know, have a place at the table, so to speak, at some of these events that the artists would hold later. Um, so it was kind of lonely and it was, you know, um, and sometimes it was just downright hard because, you know, macho men could be macho men. And, uh, I remember when I was admitted to Los Four, I was told that they had scrutinized my portfolio to make sure that I was worthy. <laughs> and one of them, and I never, they never told me who it was, but I'm sure I know who it was, who said, yeah, she's very good. She draws like a man. So I thought, okay, right. You know, I, I let a lot of stuff go because I want, I thought I respected, you know, the work that, you know, my, my compañeros did. And I knew that it would be that way. It would just, you know, I mean, if you're a Mexican-American woman from my generation, there weren't many involved men, so there was no expectation that they were going to be that different from our fathers or uncles or anybody else. So, um, you know, you just go with the flow and ignore the, the assholes and then work with the guys who are smart and, you know, interested in having you participate. What did you do after you graduated from Otis with your MFA? Um, well, you know, in those days, um, it was really funny. They told me, oh, man, you're going to find a teaching job so easy. You're a woman. You're a minority. You know, you're really talented. Oh, my God. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. Couldn't find a teaching job. Uh, so I, I had I, I, I pasted together little jobs that, ad, that added up to about $400 a month, which was enough to move out on. So I got myself a little apartment here over on Avenue 43, for a hundred bucks a month, it was really nice with a yard and everything. And then um, the Carlos Almaraz lived uh, just up on Marmion Way, so we were neighbors, and um, it was great because it was a perfect place to work out of. You know, we were still involved by that time. I was, you know, was with Los Four, and there was, you know, a lot, there were many things to do. Many, we were. It seemed like we were endlessly at meetings, and usually Marxist, Leninist or Mao, Maoist meetings where we were reading all of this, you know, this socialist material and, uh, you know, looking at, at, at art it, you know, through a different lens, essentially, which I don't regret. I mean, it was, it, it could have, it was really boring sometimes, but um, I think it was the first time, you know, through Almaraz that I was exposed to looking at the philosophical impact of what I do. And I already knew that, you know, my, my, my whole trajectory as an artist could have been so different when I think about it. What if I had been white and born in Brentwood? Would I, I would not be doing what I do today. God knows what I'd be doing. I, I don't know. I, abstract art? You know, I don't know. Conceptual art? Uh, uh, I shudder when I think about it. Um, I used to think it was a disadvantage. I used to think sometimes, you know, uh, you know, when I was young and I'd have those moments where I thought, um, you know, I, I didn't seem to be in step with, you know, with the, with, with my generation in, in many cases, but eventually it was clear to me 
that you know this is this is where I will be for the rest of my life. Um, it's something that I know. It's something that I care about. Um, there will always be things to say. You know, injustice will you know is not going to fade away in my lifetime. I, I was pretty sure about that, and of course that's been the case. And um, I just think that I I was very lucky, you know, to have been you know born when I was into this particular situation irrespective of the challenges. Um, it's been such a fulfilling way to spend, you know, the last 52 years uh, of my career doing what I love and hopefully making a difference in some way, some small way, creative way. Oh, uh, well, you have, uh, significantly, of course. What What was your art like in the early days? You know, it's not that much different from what I'm doing now. Uh, I ho- Hopefully what I'm doing now is better, but... Uh, it was figurative. It was always figurative. I guess you know when you know when you're when you're somebody who always wants to do art, and and my 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 special skill, if I have one, was always the ability to draw very well, and that's what Charles White and I had in common. He he recognized that I think, and you know he, you know when I was first in his first year drawing class. Let me tell you a great story. Okay, so this is a first year drawing class. And I was so serious about being a good student, especially for him. So I always did the homework. I was always prepared. And one Friday, he gave, you know, the undergrads this uh, drawing assignment to do a multiple figure drawing uh, and just left it kind of wide open and to bring it to to class on Monday for um, critique. So... uh, you know, I came in with mine, and it uh, was rather large. You know, put it up on the, on the on the walls, and other people put up their drawings. And uh, he walked around very silently. He always smoked, which is really terrible because that's what's killed him. Um, and he'd light up in the in the drawing room, which was a huge no no, but he'd do it anyway. And he walked around. He gave one trip around the room, and then he exploded. He was so angry. The words that came out of his mouth, you were like, oh, my God, you know, you son of a bitch, bitches, you know, I give you an assignment and this is the shit you give me. I mean, all of us are just sinking in our seats. And then finally he draws a huge breath and he says, and the only person this doesn't apply to is Hernandez. And I'm, oh, my God. <laughs> all of my classmates turn around and look at me like, whoa. And it, it was a pretty good drawing, I have to say. The, the drawing still exists. Uh, one day, I, LACMA was looking at it for their collection. I don't know if they're still deciding about it. But, um, yeah, that was, it, it was, you know, the whole situation was amazing. And, and, on, and on that level, I, you know, I, I just thought, this is it for me. I mean, you know, I, my, the, the path that I'm about to take, you know, is set and been validated. And so even though it's never made me rich, God knows, um, it's been very satisfying. You've reached a, a lot of acclaim and a lot of critical uh, acclaim, I think. Um, so you mentioned Los Four. For our audience, can you talk to us about who, what Los Four was and how you ended up becoming associated uh, with them? They were important. Um, I, I don't think they, they certainly didn't turn out didn't consciously uh, think of themselves as trailblazers, but certainly historically, you know, as as art historians look back, they they certainly were with the 
the first show uh, that they did, uh, it wasn't the first exhibition they ever did, but it was the first prominent exhibition was at Fullerton. There was a guy named, oh, geez, I'm blanking on his name, uh, a, a local arts person who was a friend of theirs, Jewish guy, a uh, really nice guy, he's still alive, um, who s- knew somebody at Fullerton. They had a nice gallery. He, they, he knew Frank Romero, who's, l- let me tell you this, this, let me explain. Los Four, the four men, all of them are almost 10 years older than I am. I was the baby. I think um, Beto de la Rocha was born in 37, 1937, and the other guys were all born about 1941, 1940, 1941. Uh, I was born in 48. So there was this age gap, you know, you know, between us. Um, and so they, uh, Hal Glixman, that's his name, this, this wonderful arts person here in Los Angeles. He arranged to have a, sh- a show after, I guess, he and Frank had talked about, well, I've got a couple of friends and we could do a show and blah, blah, blah. And so they had this show at uh, Fullerton University, California Fullerton. And, and somehow he talked um, the curator at LACMA, who was at the time, God, talking about a trailblazer, uh, pr- the only curator they had uh, who was black, um, uh, Cecil Ferguson, very famous curator from the 1960s, I guess, and 70s. I mean, he was working at that level, you know, at, at the museum level. And somehow they got together and they were able to talk the, uh, you know, the higher-ups at LACMA to move the show from Fullerton to LACMA and expand it. And it was the most successful show that that museum had ever had in their history up to that point. And I think it still ranks as one of the most successful shows. They had three or four galleries where, you know, they had, Gilbert built the entire front end of a car in one of the Gilbert Lujan. Uh, Beto de la Rocha, if you know his work, is beautiful and very, uh, very complicated and, and dense tend to be small drawings. Almaraz could do anything. He was so talented. And of course, Romero with his you know, cars and trucks and palm trees and stuff like that. So it was, it was such a departure from, uh, from what is usually or had been at Lackman. And it was, it was the first Chicano show in a, in a museum. Uh, and so to break through that, that, you know, that glass wall uh, was pretty important. And it put them on the map, and because I had joined them already, I wasn't in that exhibition because I hadn't been in the one in Fullerton. But every show after that, um, the next show we did was in Oakland. They moved uh, a version of, I forget, I don't know where the, the idea came from, but it was called In Search of Aslan. And we moved that show to Oakland uh, in the Bay Area. And then Carlos and I had work at the uh, Aesthetics of Graffiti show at the Museum of Modern Art in San Francisco. So it was really odd for, you know, for not only for people who are just graduating from, you know, from college uh, to have shows in, in major museums, but we were Brown, you know, graduates. So, um, you know, quite by chance and, and, and good fortune, you know, these people who thought our work was good. 
we began careers in museums rather than work our way in through the, you know, the community gallery system and, and you know, uh, do it that way. So it was, it was quite remarkable. It's amazing. When you go back and look at those pictures, it's like five men and you. What were, what, what were the challenges <laughs> as a Chicana woman in those days? You were breaking, ter- breaking territory at that time. I know. I had to watch my step. I never dated any of them. I never, you know, I never, I never confused work and pleasure. Uh, I only dated white Jewish guys, <laughs> just to be sure. So yeah, I mean, it was a fine line. We used to, I used to talk about it with, you know, with uh, some, some, you know, girlfriends who were, you know, likewise in their endeavors that were creative. It was difficult. You can ask any of the women who came up in the 70s and the 80s, even probably Alice Bag probably has stories about the music industry and being a woman who's, who's a punk singer. And Patsy Valdez and I constantly you know, trade stories about the shit that happened to us when we were, oops, shouldn't have said that. Um, uh, you know, just the kind of micro insults, you know, that you'd get because you're a woman in the room or, you know, the, you know, you felt underappreciated and, you know, under, there were, I don't know, it was hard sometimes. There were some men who were very nice and Almaraz was so supportive. He's the reason I was in Los Four. He, you know, we knew each other from Otis. We were good friends. And uh, I think he convinced them that, you know, we needed to have a woman in the show to show that they, to show that Los Four was evolved, that it just wasn't another bunch of macho guys like the RCAF. And I love those guys, but it's all men. And um, Mexicano was generally all men. So, yeah. So, yeah. And so yet in spite of you just, you kept going. So how did working with those four affect your artistic artistic uh, vision or abilities, do you think? You know, one of the things that's interesting about is uh, when you look at the work that we, that we all did at the time, the work before we did and the work after we were all together, um, our our approach to what we did was very distinct. You would never confuse my work for anybody else's, nor Almaraz, nor Gilbert. I thought that was really great, you know, that we had already, you know, found uh, a point of view. And as much as I admired, you know, you know what what some you know some of the guys did, I I never wanted to replicate it. I you know it just I did my own thing, and they did their thing, and. So, no, I guess, you know, we weren't an influence in that way. The influence was intellectual, not necessarily how we did what we did as artists. Yeah. And then afterward, you moved to Chicago. At what point did you decide to make the trek to Chicago? Oh, I didn't decide. I got married. uh, And then um, my husband was born in Chicago and had this, I don't know, this idealistic idea of how wonderful it was. It's, it's kind of that movie, that, that one that with Christmas, you know, when the little kid is, <laughs> is it a snowsuit and he can't move? <laughs> um, he wanted to go back. He was a graphic artist and he thought his career would be better there. It turned out that it wasn't. But, you know, I was a good sport. You know, my mother being, you know, uh, a, a, a Mexican-American woman from the traditional world said, well, you have to, you know, your husband wants to do this, blah, blah, blah. So we went in 1984. Um, when the Olympics were, were, you know, scheduled to come. So we left, I think, the week that the Olympics started. 
And uh, I thought that we'd, you know, be there four or five years, you know, you get tired of it and want to come back. His parents lived here, his sisters live here. Um, but no, you know, the winters didn't bother him, you know, the fact that his career didn't, you know, really take off. Um, so I, I don't know, I, you know, I just sort of stuck it out and then my daughter was born and I thought, well, you know, she's, you know, she's, she has support here in that, you know, he had a very large family and, um, I don't know, moving her at that point didn't seem to be, you know, good for her. So we stayed until she was 18 and then I was able <clears throat> to come back, you know, we divorced and I came back and, um, after 20 years of not doing art, I, you know, came back, um, it was a huge risk, but, um, Thank God it worked out. <laughs> so you weren't doing any art at all when you were in Chicago? I did maybe six or seven works. You know, people asked me, commissioned a, a couple of pieces. Uh, it wasn't until the last five years. Uh, we were there. I was there a total of 25 years. So the last five years, I managed to, you know, quit my day job. I taught for 30 years, you know, 15 here and 15 in Chicago. Um I uh, I got a, I got a studio um, and um, well I met a wonderful man and he, he's in fact he'll, he'll be coming to the Cheech opening um, uh, Carlos Toledo who's the president the founder and the president of the uh, National Museum of Mexican Art in Chicago and he knew that I was living in Chicago and he would always send me a personal postcard inviting me to these exhibitions and these receptions. And I would ignore them because I was an artist who was doing no art. I mean, I knew he would ask me, well, what are you doing? You know, can we come and see what you're doing? And I had nothing new to show um, until uh, my daughter Ariel and I went to the Frida show. She was in high school. She wanted to see it. So I said, why not? So we went and I left him my card. I was working for the University of Illinois Chicago campus at that time and saying how much we enjoyed the exhibition, you know, da-da-da. By the time I got home, the phone was ringing. It was Carlos, and he's, uh, you'll, you'll meet him. He is, he's an A-type personality. He's like, he's like the roadrunner. He runs from here to there. He talks that fast, and he's just like, he's an amazing man. Um, and he, you know, said, we, we must have lunch. You know, I'll bring Cesario, the curator. And, da, 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 da. and so we had lunch and then they said, you know, okay, take us, take us to your house. You have work there? Well, yeah, but it's old. That eh, doesn't matter. Went to the house, you know, he, they saw the work and he said, and he turns to society and says, well, you know where artists work? Find her a studio. Find her where she can, what she can afford and, you know, so she can have a studio again. So he pushed me back into the studio to work. And so for five years, I was able to do that. Uh, and produced a lot of work. It, it was so wonderful to go in, no writer's block, just I set up, you know, my easel, you know, put out the pastels of the paper and bang. Um, and then when I left, he gave me my first solo show in years. I think the last one had been here in Los Angeles, like, yeah, 25 years before um, when we left Chicago. Um, I had the the that wonderful special gallery where Frida had her show a few years before um, uh, at, at his museum. And it was up 
for half of the year in 2011. And uh, I mean, you know, those kinds of things you can't plan. You know, people who who respect your work and want to help, you know, they they pop up in the most amazing places in your life. And they keep you going and they move you forward. And, you know, after I, I got to Los Angeles, it was the same thing, you know, old friends, you know, the, the whole Chicano network, you know, was there being supportive and wonderful. And um, at 74, I am so tired. The last years are just worth, that's 10 years of worn me out. But it's, it's a great, you know, it's a great thing to be. Um, you know, active and, and still working and hopefully being relevant at my age. And, and still producing some of the most beautiful art I've ever seen. Oh, thank you. It is just a masterpiece. You know, I think it is better, you know. It, it is, I try not to repeat myself. I hate that when I see, you know, friends that I know who are just repeating their success. I never want to do that. And I hate to show old work. Um, so I... I push myself pretty hard. I'm the most critical critic I have. I look in, when I look at, at my work, when it's finished, I'm satisfied with it, but I know that it, it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't get to the place that I saw in my head. And so I look at it and I see the flaws. And um, it, that keeps me going. I keep you know, trying to hit that mark. And maybe I shouldn't. Because it does keep me going. I just can't, you know, it has to be better the next time. The next one out has to be better than the last one. Which of your art pieces are you most proud of? Actually, it's a, it's a, a rather recent one. It's, it seemed as if a lot of things, you know, uh, kind of came together in, in, a, in the beginning of a, in a, in a very important series for me. Uh, I think the reason that I received the anonymous, you know, was a woman grant last year, um, because I, I think I made a pretty good argument for the fact that, you know, the grant would help me uh, start work on a series that I think may be the most important series I do, you know, at, at this you know stage of my career, uh, because of the conversation that's being had by young, you know, Chicano historians and uh, uh young, you know, Chicano's period, like, you know, my daughter, uh, who are, have become very concerned about writing the, the true history of the, of the conquest of the Western Hemisphere and correct all of the mistakes and all of the, the fairy tales, you know, that are, that are taught, if they're ever taught to students about what it was like, you know, the, the, the absolute savage appropriation of this entire continent, you know, by Europeans. And so the whole colonization, you know, I mean, there are books out it now, there are, you know, conferences and where historians are talking about this and that. It's a subject that I have thought about, but I never really, I didn't know how I would talk about it visually. And then um, I began to think about it seriously. And I thought I would like to spend time doing this if I can, you know, clear the decks in terms of, you know, what I do to, you know, to, um, to make a living. So, um, the grant came, was very helpful. And that the piece, it's called Unconquered. It's, it's the, it's the major image on the, on, in my website, uh, on the, on the, on the colonization series. 
And it's this, this woman who's standing in behind a, a, a vast landscape of agaves behind her, and she has a deer next to her with the, the skull mask on. And um, she's dressed in a, an indigenous you know, garb, and, but she, she looks very... And you know, and I did it, and I, I generally do women. I, women are the figures that I that I work with. But I thought it seemed very highly appropriate because countries are usually referred to in, in a feminist gender, right? The motherland. And I thought I want to tackle that in some way, where and in fact, my dear friend um, Charlene Viesinger Black, the you know, incredible historian. Um, who was also writing a book about me. <laughs> I was so amazed when she asked, she's working on it now, uh, said to me during many the many conversations we've had, you know, she's interviewed me several times. She said, you know, the, the, the thing that, that strikes me about your work, you know, people will say that it's feminist, it has feminist tendencies, blah, 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 but you know what's different about what you do? And I had never thought of it this way, and I thought, that's brilliant, that she, you're absolutely right. You, you make the female figure, which you see, you've seen for thousands of years, you know, from Europe and, you know, in, in Renaissance painting, et cetera, and all, you know, in American art. But they tend to be um, objects. And you turn the female form into the subject. And I thought, oh, my God, that is the right distinction, isn't it? I try very hard not to be exploitive, not to be disrespectful in any way, but to, you know, give the female form the importance that it deserves. And the, the, you know, the incredible nuanced symbols in, in which that form, you know, gives a new life, gives, a, um, gives something for the, for the onlooker, whether they're male or female, something to see that's familiar and then takes them into a different place intellectually, you know, because it's asking a question generally that's pretty tough that they might not consider if they had not been drawn to the beauty of the form. So um, I, I, that piece in particular I thought really rang a good note. As a Chicana trailblazer in art, how would you like to be remembered in future historical documents? Oh gosh, as a chingona, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, That's a you given. Have, you, have, <laughs> you have no control over what historians say. I, I hope that um, you know, as we progress as a group, as we form a, a middle class and a professional class, and hopefully, you know, a wealthy class who buys my work. Um, that um, you know, people continue to look back, you know, at, at at the artists that have come before me that were part of my generation and those after, um, with as, as much respect and interest as we have always looked at European art. I think it deserves that. It's 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 an art form that was born, you know, in the Western Hemisphere by the the descendants. Of the of the people who first populated this this part of the world, and I, I think that um, if I can be part of that historical landscape from the beginning, you know, into the future, 
um, so that occasionally my things come out and are seen by people. Um, that would make me very happy. And I know that, that, that my daughter will, will write about, you know, this time and she will write about, um, you know, history, you know, that covers uh, what my generation did and, and, and what future generations do. And, uh, and she'll teach, you know, and she'll talk about that. And um, it, it's, a, it's a way to live on. And I, I, I'd be very happy with that. Where do you think Chicano art is going to be 200 years from now? Gosh, I don't know. Uh, what could I worry you, about that, you know. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know what I worry about. I worry about Chicanos being so American, so European that they lose their grip on on the tremendous history uh, that they belong to, you know, rightfully belong to as original inhabitants. Of, of this of the Western Hemisphere, I don't want them to forget that. You know, maybe they won't speak Spanish. I don't know. Maybe they, you know, they won't eat street tacos and you know go to you know you know quinceañeras. I hope they do. But um, I I grew up in the. I was a young woman. You know, by the time it was nineteen seventies, I was in my twenties, right? And one of the things that I found that was very odd was why white kids were looking for something like their identity or some place to plant themselves in other people's cultures. You know, you had you saw them streaming towards Hare Krishna and going to communes and you know doing things that had nothing to do with their heritage as white Europeans. It's because somewhere their their people had lost the thread and passed nothing on to them. And, and I, I hope that as parents, we, we don't fail in that respect. We teach the culture and hope that, you know, they will teach the culture to theirs and there will be a, a continuous um, thread, uh, you know, of, 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 of a bond between, you know, ourselves and our, and our, our cousins in, in Mexico that, you know, we were able to, to, to celebrate this amazing culture and history. So, yeah. Well, thank you. That is all the time that we have today. Uh, it's been my pleasure to talk to my fascinating friend, Judith Hernandez. It's always fun to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> always good to talk to you. Thank you for joining us on Healing with Dr. George, The Power of Chicano Latinx Art. Please continue to tune into our series as we explore the themes of self and community healing through Chicano Latinx Art. Also, don't forget to visit the website www.latinoarte.com in order to view the beautiful array of Chicano Latinx art that is available to add to your own collection. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human, human, 
Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy.